Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Jerry. I'm one of the pastors. Hey, uh, if you haven't done so already, I want to encourage you to, if you have your Bible, to turn it to the book of Genesis, and we're going to be in chapter 37 all the way to the end. I'm, in the interest of time, I'm going to be skimming uh, and dwelling, uh, as uh, pastors sometimes say. I uh, also want to encourage you, if you have your bulletin, there's an outline in there. We'll be going through that shortly. But before we get to that, I'm uh, just curious, graduation always makes me think of high school reunions. How many of you are planning to go to a high school reunion or a get-together? You don't have to say what year you graduated. It's okay. It's safe here. Okay, but anybody going to go to a high school reunion sometime this summer? Anybody? It's inter- yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I've, I've I found it interesting. Um, the, the, one of the methods that high schools sometimes use to encourage alumni to come back and get together because they figure, you know, I don't know if I want to go. You know, I don't look the, quite the same as I did in my high school yearbook. What they do is they take a picture of you from your high school yearbook. They put it, they blow it up kind of big, and then they put it on a stick, kind of like a mask, so, or, or like on, a, on like a name tag, so that when you go up, you're like, hey, and you're wondering, who is this person, you know? Now, of course, some people... <laughs> Some people probably don't need as, uh, that, that, as much of, a, uh, of, that, of that photo, meaning what they look like now may not look quite the same, but they still could be easily recognized. Here's one that I thought that was interesting. I just found this from the uh, Wahooan from class of 1979, Scott. Okay, Scott's classmate, Barry Obama, okay? Of course, he's lost the, the 70s fro, but, you know, you can pretty much make out who he is. I don't know. He'll... He's, he's probably too busy to come to the alumni luau this year, but who knows? Next year, he'll have plenty of time on his hands. You just never know. But what's the purpose of a high school reunion anyway? Is it just that we're going to see what does everybody look like? I suppose that would be an initial thing, but I think really, why do we go? We go because we want to reconnect with people. We want to turn out, we want to find out how has how life turned out for you? Most of us don't look a whole lot like we did in high school, and that's okay. What do you want to turn out like? In fact, most of you, I think, if I asked today, hey, has life turned out the way you thought it would when you were in high school? I doubt if many of you would say that. that life is interesting, isn't it? Of course, we can have plans. We can, and you can say, well, I want to go to college. I want to get this degree. I want to go into this line of work. I want to get married and have kids. Okay, maybe some of those things. But there are a lot of twists and turns in life, aren't there? Life doesn't always turn out like we think it's going to. The story of Joseph, one of my favorite characters in the Bible, is a life that is marked by one particular thing, and that is faithfulness. And in our ongoing study through this Believe series, we're going to focus on the gift of the Spirit, excuse me, the fruit of the Spirit called faithfulness. And I think this guy Joseph, you know, exemplifies this better than many other people in the pages of Scripture, short of Jesus himself. See, whatever he went through, whether it was good times, times of great prosperity and power, or whether he was in misery, whether he was suffering, this guy was faithful. There are a number of lessons we can learn from this guy's life, but I want to focus on just three. Before we get into that, though, a little background. 
Joseph grew up in a pretty kind of a pampered situation. He was in a big family. He had 10 brothers. Can you imagine that? Okay. I just had one. But 10 brothers. And he turned out that he was the favorite of his old father, Jacob. Well, you know, favoritism usually backfires. And that's what happened to him. His brothers were not just jealous, they hated him, and they actually took him, threw him in a pit, and were going to leave him for dead, but decided not to. They sold him into slavery. Now, just put yourself in Joseph's sandals just for a minute. You just went from being a favored son status in the lap of luxury to the lowest of the low. You're a slave. The Psalms commenting on this said that Joseph not only had shackles around his ankles, but around his neck. He was being treated worse than a dog. Marching through the desert, probably didn't know what, where he was going. He couldn't understand these guys. They were from another nation. All he knew is they were heartless. They were a lot worse than his brothers ever were. Well, eventually he made his way to some kind of a civilization. He probably was smart enough to figure out, I'm in Egypt. Not a great place for a good Jewish boy to be in. He was eventually sold to an important, dignified kind of a guy. A guy named Potiphar, who the scriptures tell us was the captain of Pharaoh's guard, which translation into our language today would have been, he was like the head of the secret service, the FBI. This guy was not someone to be messed with. So Joseph, you know, goes there, and for whatever reasons, we don't know. But he began to do his best, and it paid off because he essentially got promoted. Now, not a paycheck. Slaves don't get paychecks. He was probably invited into the main house instead of being out in the huts, the hovels where the other slaves were. He goes in there, and he probably had a better, better outfit, better bed, and so on and so forth. Probably, you know, things were starting to look up for him. He was starting to get a little bit of hope. And then it happens. Potiphar's wife, who is obviously neglected, basically tries to seduce him. And as any red-blooded young man who follows God would do, he refused. And he ran out of there. Well, whoever said... Hell has no fury like that of a woman that's been scorned. Must have been thinking about Potiphar's wife because she cried and accused him of rape. He got thrown into prison on trumped-up charges. Now, again, just, just pause the DVD for a second. If you were Joseph, how would you feel? You tried to do your best. You honestly did. And it turned out terribly. So now you're in prison. So what do you do? Do you give up? No. He continues to demonstrate this faithfulness there somehow to the point where the warden in that prison makes him his personal assistant. He probably figured out this guy doesn't really belong here. Joseph continues to serve. And one day, through a series of events that he's not aware of, these two well-dressed guys, he can tell these guys are of means. They, They come in there. And they get thrown into prison. He finds out one is the, the, actually, both of them are working directly for Pharaoh himself. Most powerful man in that, in the known world at that time. And they, it's interesting because these guys end up having 
a dream. One was the baker, one was the cupbearer, like a taste tester. And they come to Joseph. He must have earned their trust somehow. And they said, we have these dreams. And he goes, well, let me see if I can help you. And he interprets their dreams. And both of their dreams turn out exactly as Joseph said. Baker got a, off with your head. The cupbearer was restored to Pharaoh. And as the cupbearer is leaving, Joseph tells him, listen, I, I shouldn't be in here. Can you put in a good word for me with the man upstairs there when you get up there? And then you'd, you'd like to hope that the scripture had a parenthesis there where it says, and he got him out of jail, but it doesn't. It says that the cupbearer forgot Joseph. Here again, you try to do the right thing. You try to help people. Where does it get you? A month goes by, then a couple months, then a year. But then two years later, two full years, the Bible tells us that, unbeknownst to Joseph, Pharaoh himself has a troubling dream. He can't understand it. It's, you know how dreams are. They're hard to understand to begin with. And he goes to all his wise men. They're there in the court. He's troubled by it. He doesn't know what the, all these symbolic things mean. None of the wise men can figure it out. And the cupbearer says, wait a minute. I know a guy. And they go and get Joseph, clean him up, bring him up. And all of a sudden, Joseph, you know, is standing for, again, this incredibly powerful man. Pharaoh says, I understand you can interpret dreams. Joseph, faithful to the core, says, no, not, not me. But God can. God can, can, can do this. Pharaoh proceeds to explain to him this dream, and Joseph gets it right away. He has this gift from God, and he explains to him there's going to be seven good years of crops and so forth, the bumper crops, and then there's going to be seven years of famine. And then he goes on and he says, this is exactly what you should do to handle this situation. You should do set this much aside, charge these many taxes and so forth, but I don't think... I don't think Joseph was prepared for the, for the statement that Pharaoh eventually made to him where he said, well, probably turns his head and looks at the other guys around him who didn't know what to say or do, and he said, is there anybody better for this job? You guys got any ideas? He said, okay, you got this job. You're going to be my next, in, my, my, you know, my prime minister, basically, takes off his signet ring, which basically is like a purchase card today. Should we go there? No, let's not do that. But the point is, is this guy had incredible power. You talk about a rags-to-riches story. This is it. He goes from being down in the dungeon to really the most powerful man except Pharaoh in all of the known world. Well, things changed for him pretty quickly. He had a big job to do. Not a lot of time to dwell on the past, but sure enough, the interpretation of those dreams came true. The famine did eventually come, and Joseph was managing that. He was, made, he was overseeing all this grain distribution and so forth to these people, not first in Egypt and then to people in outlying countries. And then one day, he's, and I don't know what the scene looked like, 
But one day he sees these 10 guys coming in, kind of haggard, but he knows exactly who they are. They're his brothers that have shown back up from Canaan because they need food. They're out. Again, pause, pause the movie right here for just a second. Can you imagine the mixture of emotions that Joseph had right at that moment? On the one hand, he might have thought, well, 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 look who's here. And he's thinking, I could just end you right now. Then on the other end, that, that voice in his heart, in his head, as the scripture said, the Lord was with Joseph may have said to him, did you ever think that maybe you're in this position so that you can actually help them? Well, Joseph struggled. (laughs) Several chapters are actually spent in the book of Genesis explaining how he struggled. He actually accused them of being spies. The the scripture says he spoke roughly to them. Um, He didn't trust them. And, you know, sometimes that happens in life. It takes us a while to trust again, doesn't it? He eventually develops this elaborate plan, which, again, time doesn't allow me to elucidate right now, but it's a fascinating plan that he develops to to find out whether or not they're really different, whether they've changed, whether they're willing to really be different. Sends all but one of them back to Egypt to go and do that. He says, but when you come back, you've got to bring your youngest brother and then they try to hold out. Old Jacob is, you know, he's 100 and something by then. And he said, no, you can't do it. Eventually, they run out of food. They come back to, down to Egypt for more food. And, there, and, and in, in what must have been a very moving scene, they come before him. And they, it says they throw themselves down at Joseph's feet. Just begging for mercy, basically. I don't think that they were prepared for what he had to say to them. He said, I'm Joseph. It was the big reveal at that point. I'm Joseph. I'm your brother. And, you know, it was a scene because he was, Joseph was weeping. It said he was crying so hard that the people in the next house could hear him. And he says these words to him. He says, Do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. It was not you who sent me here, but God. He eventually sends them back. He tells them, he loads them down. He just says, you know, take all this stuff to prove to our old father that I really am alive, that I really am in this position. Come move down here. And uh, the rest, as we say, is history. You know what's fascinating to me about this story is how did this guy do this? How, in the face of the kinds of problems that he experienced, uh, was he able to remain faithful to God and to people throughout all these things? Was it just that he was such a saint, you know, he walked around with the halo that he just didn't have it in him, you know? I don't think so. Was it just that he had arrived, you know, he had, 
he had attained all of his goals and so on and so forth, and he thought, ah, you know, we just let bygones be bygones. No, I don't think so. In fact, I think the very fact that he was in the position of power that he was in gave him much more temptation to just, again, take revenge on these people, but he didn't. How, how, how did he do that? Well, I'm going to look at three principles from this story of this very fascinating man. And again, follow along in your outline if you, if you would. The first one is this. If you want to be faithful, kind of like Joseph was, you have to learn to treat problems as preparation. You know, problems are normal in life. Uh, we all have problems. Uh, sometimes people erroneously think that if you're a good Christian, that you'll never have problems. But that simply is not true. Now, these next couple of points are, are not original to me, but they're, they're good, okay? And, and why is it that God allows problems in our lives? There's three basic reasons, okay? Let, let's look at this first one. The first one is to correct us. Sometimes we need to be corrected. We need a course correction. As the scripture says, the Lord disciplines those he loves. You know, it's kind of, sort of like you're in the car, your phone rings, you didn't put on your Bluetooth or your headset, and you're going to grab, and you think, well, you know, just this once, you know. You, you, you'll go to grab your phone, and in the meantime, you're grabbing it, you're looking at it just for, just for a second, you know. And in the meantime, you realize, I'm going, somebody honks next to you. You need a course correction in a hurry, don't you? And sometimes God does that to us. When we're out of our lane, get me? God sends problems our way to get our attention. But sometimes we get problems really for a different reason. That is to protect us. In other words, problems sometimes are like immunizations. You, you, you get immunizations for what? In, in ideally, you get an immunization to to stimulate and protect you against something worse. That's why you get immunized. This is what the Bible means. You know, Jesus said this. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. The last one is, I think, largely what was going on in Joseph's life. And that's this, it's to perfect us. Paul the Apostle said, my grace, you know, God was speaking to him. He said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. In other words, sometimes God allows problems in our lives because he wants to help us to develop our potential to the full. Those of you who have um, learned a, something, a musical instrument, uh, maybe you're in sports, Maybe you had a mentor in business. You know, usually a good coach, a good teacher, they'll push you. I look back in my life sometimes, boy, when I, you know, people pushed me. They said, no, 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 you can do this. In fact, you have to do this. And at the time, I was like, this isn't fair. You know, later I look back now and I think, I am so glad that people saw that potential in me. Well, listen, God does that for us. He sometimes allows situations in our life to help us realize what we're really there for. The question is this, do we realize that the problems we have are often preparation for the future? I think Joseph somehow 
was able to figure out that the things that were happening to him were part of a much larger issue, much more profound than he fully understood. They were designed to prepare him. See, if somehow if he, if he would have never been thrown in that pit and then sold into slavery by his brothers, he would have never gone to Egypt. If he had never gone to Egypt, he would have never met Potiphar. If he had never met Potiphar, he would never met Mrs. Potiphar, the original cougar. Okay? If he never met Mrs. Potiphar, he never would have gotten thrown into jail on trumped-up charges. If he never got thrown into jail, he never became the warden's assistant. If he never became the warden's assistant, he would have never met the, the, uh, the baker and the, and the cupbearer. If he would never met them, he would have never met Pharaoh. And if he would have never met Pharaoh, he would have never become the prime minister of Egypt who later not only brought his family, about 70 people, down from Canaan to survive there, but later, as the Scripture tells us, so that they could multiply there for 400 years until the time of what we now call the Exodus. Somehow Joseph got that. And a little parenthesis here. Do you ever think about this? Joseph didn't have any family. He didn't even have a Bible. He didn't have a church, but it said the Lord was with him. Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. The Bible also says if we've accepted Jesus Christ into our life, that we not only have the Holy Spirit with us, that he's actually in us to guide us, to direct us. Remember, when you're going through a problem, pause and, 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 and think. It, it, is this for preparation for something greater, something I don't fully understand? Another thing Joseph did that we can learn from is to train our attitude. We need to train our attitude. Now, sometimes uh, motivational speakers will portray attitude like, attitude is everything, man, you know? You probably have a T-shirt somewhere that has that on there. I saw a bumper sticker, heard them say it. Now, look, attitude, I hate to break it to you, it isn't everything. It isn't. But it's important. In fact, it's oftentimes a game changer. Joseph had lost everything. He was completely on his own. But somehow, I have to believe that he recognized of the little that he had control of, he had control of his attitude. Let me share a couple of statements with you that, that are pretty profound. Here's the first one. What happens in you is always more important than what happens to you. Let me say that again. What happens in you is always more important than what happens to you. And there's another one that goes right with that, that's the next one. What happens in you determines what happens through you. Did you get that? Years and years ago, an, an, a great old-time Christian uh, told me this. He said, you know, God works in you and for you in order that he might work through you. My question is, do you want to be used by God? Do you want to be faithful? Do you want to make a positive difference 
in the, in, the, in the circle, the sphere of influence that you have? If you do, you got to train your attitude. Look at this quote from John Maxwell. It's a great statement. Attitude, he said, to me is more important than education, than money, than circumstances, than failures, than successes, than what other people think or say or do. It's more important than appearance, giftedness, or skill. It will make or break a company, a church, a home. The remarkable thing is that we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we embrace for that day. We cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that people act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play on the one string we have, and that's our attitude. I'm convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. And so it is with you. We are in charge of our attitudes. It's kind of interesting at this point in my life to every now and then realize I'm in a position where I can hire people. (laughs) I used to be the young guy, you know. Now I'm older and I'm in this position where sometimes I'm hiring people, in particular younger people that will come to me like for a summer job. Usually in the process of an interview for a summer job, which is pretty straightforward, near the end of the interview, I'll ask them, do you have any more questions? And they say, no, no, you know. And I'll just, I'll just say to them, well, I have a couple questions for you. And then they get nervous. And then I usually say something like this. I say, you know, one day you're going to be calling or texting me or emailing me and say, hey, Pastor Jerry, you know, I'm finishing college now and I want to get this job. And can you write me a letter of recommendation? And, you know, and, and then I tell them, you know what that prospective boss and that company that you want to work for is going to ask me? Or they're going to want to see on that letter of recommendation? Or even better, if they give me a call and say, hey, you wrote this letter for this guy. You know what they're going to ask me? They're going to ask me things like this. They're going to say, is this guy reliable? Does he show up on time? Does he do what he says he's going to do? Does he need constant supervision? Or can I give him something and he'll get it done? And oh, then usually somewhere in that conversation, there's a question kind of like this, usually a little more off the record if you know what I'm saying. You'll say, what kind of attitude does this person have? Because listen, all those skills, punctuality, reliability, all those things matter. They're they're important. But at the core of all of them is attitude. (laughs) We need to develop skills in our life to be sure in order to be faithful whether it's at work or at home or whatnot, but I'm telling you, if you want to be faithful, you need to cultivate, to train your attitude every day. One last thing, and I'll close with this. If you want to be faithful, you have to learn like Joseph did, that when you can't trace God's hand to trust his heart, You know, as Christians, our lives are ultimately determined not by chance. They're determined by God. A common statement that young people, you'll often hear young people making, it goes something like this. Whoa, that is so random, dude, you know? (laughs) Do you know what that means? Now, sometimes it's just a thing that people say. 
Like, I didn't expect that to happen. But what that reflects down at the core is that nothing is, you can't count on anything in life. That we're just out there like corks bobbing on the ocean, out in the middle of the ocean. Nothing can be counted on. Everything is by chance. You make it, you make it, you don't, you don't. It is what it is, you know? But you know, as Christians, that simply is not true. Now look, when I say that God is ultimately control, I'm not saying that we're marionettes, you know, puppets on strings, you know, where God is just a puppet master up in the sky somewhere. We, that isn't how that goes. We have a choice. God has given us a free will. He expects us to use it. But everything that comes into our lives comes through the hand of God. And even when we can't tell what's going on, we can't make sense of things, we can trust his heart. Because God is love. Well, let's face it. Some things we go through defy reason. They defy explanation. And as a pastor, I'm often sitting with someone who's weeping or angry, who has left the church and said, you know, I'm done. I'm so done with this. Because things have happened in their life that just trouble them. Sometimes they'll say to me, why? I'll have to sometimes say, I don't know. I don't always know why. But what I can tell you is this. When you can't trace God's hand, you can trust his heart. Long ago in the days of the sailing ships, true story, which I'm sure happened more than once, but in this case, sailing ship was out in the South Pacific, lost its way in a storm overnight, the ship broke up, almost everybody was lost, the ship sank, one guy makes it to a deserted island. He gets up, he tries to survive, get, builds himself a little, you know, lean-to kind of a situation, tries to survive, does what he can, fish and find rain, catch rainwater, you know, just survival stuff. But every day he tries to go up to the high point on that little deserted island to look because he knew he was somewhere near a shipping lane. He never saw anything. Well, one day he was up there at his annual, you know, he's foraging for food and just, you know, up there looking out just to see if he could see anybody, at, you know, any ships in the horizon. And he, he noticed all of a sudden that smoke was coming up just all of a sudden down on the, on the island, and he ran down into his dismay when he got down there. The little shack with the few things that he'd been able to kind of scrounge up from the wreckage that he used to just kind of survive there, just it was completely engulfed with flames. He was so frustrated, so down that he just kind of, you know, just fell down on the ground and just looked up, you know, looked up at the sky and just thought, you know, is life even worth living anymore? Eventually he fell asleep and next morning he woke up to the sound of the surf like he usually did. And This time something was different. He looked up and thought he heard the slap of paddles on the ground. And sure enough, there was a, there was a, a boat out there, a small, like a rowboat, coming his way. And off in the horizon, a big sailing ship out just beyond the reef. Of course, he just ran to the water to greet the guys that were there and you know, after a few kind of, uh, you know, how'd you get here kind of, kind, of, kind of conversation, 
He said, how did you know that I was here? And they said, well, we saw your smoke signal yesterday. We figured somebody had to be there. See, sometimes the things that we think are the worst possible things that happen to us can actually turn out to save us. Or as Paul the Apostle said in Romans 8 verse 28, that God works all things together for good. Notice he didn't say most things or some things. He said God works all things together for good to, for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purposes. God can take those terrible things that have happened to you and as only he can do, he can weave them in such a way to bring good, not only into your life, but through your life to others. Some of you are familiar with the name Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was a man from England. He was, or as it ended up turning out, he was one of the most influential Christian missionaries in the last 200 years. He was, uh, a, he had like white blonde hair and, you know, it was not like a superlative kind of a guy, but he had heard about the people in China, a faraway place, and he said, I want to volunteer to be a missionary there. And Like all the other missionaries, when he arrived, he ended up on the eastern seaboard, cities like Shanghai and Beijing, which used to be called Peking, okay? And they stayed there along that eastern seaboard because that's where all the Westerners were. It was safer there. You got out kind of into the country there. It was dangerous, but Taylor had heard about the thousands and thousands of people that had never heard the name of Jesus. And he said, I want to go there. Talked to his superiors about that. They said, no way. We are not going to support you. If you go out, you leave the reservation, you are out on your own. He said, okay. Because he was convinced that God had called him to go. Hudson Taylor was, ended up being responsible for leading thousands and thousands and thousands of people to faith in Christ. Many years later in his life, though, he was an older man by then, a young minister came up, someone whose heart was really passionate and wanted to go to the mission field and approached him. And he, he said, you know, after a meeting and when he was talking about China and the needs that still existed there, he said, Mr. Taylor, may I ask you what your favorite Bible verse is? Of course, the young man was probably thinking, well, it's probably going to be, it's got to be something like John 3.16, you know, which would have been a great verse. Hudson Taylor, that old man, paused and then looked up and he said to him, 2 Timothy 2.13. And there were other people there. And so the young man was like, 2 Timothy, what does that say? You know, it was like, it was like Bible quiz time, you know. The young man kind of removed himself from the crowd, went and flipped to the pages of the scripture there. And he looked at that. It's a very interesting statement because it says this. Even when we are faithless, God is faithful still.
Maybe your life hasn't turned out like you thought it was going to. My question for you today is, what kind of picture do you want to have? Do you want to be faithful? You can. Maybe some of you are thinking, I am not faithful at all, Jerry. I, if you really knew my life, you, you would know that. And, and I, I Sounds great. It's an inspirational story. Thank you. But yeah, yeah, it's not going to be me. I want to encourage you. <laughs> You're here today for a reason. Among other things, I believe, is to hear these words of the old Apostle John who said, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Some of you need to start again, and you need to do that right now. I want to pray, and I want to ask those of you who need to make it right with God to pray with me, because God will meet you right where you are. Dear God, we thank you again for your word, for the life of this man, Joseph, for the privilege of being able to come to you and find what we need to live for you. Now, while every head is bowed and eyes closed, if you need to pray and get right with God again, pray with me right now, and he'll hear you. Dear God, thank you for sending Jesus to die for me. I ask that you forgive my sins. I ask that you come into my life. I ask that you be my Lord, my leader. Help me to live for you, God, to be faithful. Friend, if you prayed that prayer, God has not only heard you, but he's answered that already. Thank you, Lord, for every decision that's been made. In Jesus' name, amen.